this is a historic decision in a landmark lawsuit. This is the first lawsuit challenging institutional censorship of student speech supporting Palestinian rights on a college campus in this country. As someone who thinks of Palestinians as heroes and likes thrillers, I kind of thought, well, let's let's put these things together for for a, a reader like myself. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Asa Wynn Stanley. Asa, how are you? I'm excellent, Nora. I uh, hope you're good. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's the dog days of summer, but you would never know it here in the Bay Area in California, where it is foggy and cold. So. Oh, wow. Well, it's been yeah. fairly hot here, over here in London. So, um, yeah, I guess we're in luck. Um, I've come back from a week off of social media. Didn't miss it. Congratulations. Sorry to its followers. I didn't miss it. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but then also, see, social media taketh and social media, you know, social media giveth and social media taketh away because yes. it's, it's a bit like a drug, isn't it? Because yeah. I, I, I told my followers I'm going to be away for a week and then I got all these likes and oh. I got all this stuff stroking my ego, basically. So then when I came back, I got all these people saying, oh, we missed you, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, oh, this is great. Yeah, on a subconscious <laughs> level, I thought that. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's a massage to anyone's ego, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. It's social media is a useful tool, but it's also, like, really can be toxic and poisonous and yeah. time-wasting. So I think we've had to learn to sort of use it in a balanced kind of way yeah yeah it, it's um it's a matter of self-care to to learn how to turn it off and walk away at some point um so yeah. i'm really glad that you did that um so asa what uh, i know you've been off social media but but what have you been following lately and and what uh you know what what stories do you think are are important for people to to look out for right now well something that just caught my eye this week was the story about Ilhan Omar and the rest of the squad planning a trip to Palestine, to occupied Palestine, as a kind of alternative to the usual APAC-led propaganda trip, um, yeah. showing how great Israel is to all these um, representatives and senators and whatnot. Um, and uh, there seems to be speculation that she may or may not be denied entry to the country because of her support for BDS. Um, the boycott, divestment, sanctions mm-hmm. movement um, for Palestinian rights, um, and there, this was sort of occasioned. It seems uh, a small sort of flurry of stories about this, occasioned by the petition of a group called Sharat Hadin or the Israel Law Center, mm-hmm. um, which is petitioning the High Court uh, in Israel to bar her entry due to her support for BDS and to apply the the law that's been on the books for, I think, a couple of years now, right? That yeah. um, uh, gives Israel the ability to deny supporters of BDS entry to the country just on that basis alone. Um, so she might... Remind us who and what Sharat Hadin is. Yeah, so the point that really caught my eye with these stories was that they they got into who Sharat Hadin they just they mentioned to Sharat Hadin that it's making this petition but all of the stories that I could see about it um, I just checked online they all just called Sharat Hadin an Israeli NGO so that it's a non-governmental organization and this is how this is how it portrays itself which is an absolute load of rubbish I mean so Shirat Hadin is essentially a front group for the Mossad and the other Israeli intelligence agencies. It's kind of what you, you know, if it was Russian, you would call it a Russian cutout, um, or the the the, uh, the old mainstream media would. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, and this has been known for years. It's just never really acknowledged that much. Um, and I've been sort of covering them on and off for years, really. Um, in 2013, um, Spinwatch, which is um, 
a really good organization in the UK which keeps an eye out on um, lobbying organizations and they do a really good job on the Israel lobby as well as many others. Um, um, some friends of mine there uncovered, they they delved into the WikiLeaks uh, cables archives and they discovered a document, a, a cable, a US embassy cable from 2007, which showed that the director of Sharat Hadin, Nitsana Darshan Leitner, had told US embassy staff that she and her group, quote, took direction from Israeli spy agencies. I can't quite recall if that's a quote from her own mouth or a summary by the embassy mm. of what she said. But either way, it's it was very clear from the cable that this organisation was not what it claimed to be. It was not a non-governmental organisation. And it was just a way for right. the Mossad and other Israeli intelligence agencies to kind of use the courts primarily in the US, but also in the UK and other countries, to attack its opponents. And they claim they're bankrupting... Um, their their tagline is bankrupting terrorism one group at a time or some nonsense like that. Um, but really, their main target seems to be BDS, certainly in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, any claim that they're a non-governmental organisation... Is pure nonsense. Uh, this was twenty two thousand and thirteen when I first wrote about this. Um, I think the WikiLeaks. Um, so it, yeah, it was it, when, when this WikiLeaks cable f- was was first sort of exposed twenty thirteen. Uh, more recently in twenty seventeen, they pretty much admitted it. Um, she, uh, the director, Nitsana Darshan Leitner, wrote a book called Harpoon about how brilliant Shirat Hadin is. And, you know, they they pretty... Because, obviously, the truth is out there on the internet for anyone who wants to Google their group, they can't really deny it anymore. So instead, they're just talking about, in this book, about how great <laughs> their links are with the Mossad, right? How, yeah, you know, she was invited to the Mossad headquarters for consultation when it was first... Her group was first set up and so forth. So it's been known, and this is out there. But, yeah, all these stories about um Shirat Hadin's sort of legal harassment of Ilhan Omar just call a just call the group an NGO which is nonsense you know um yeah to be fair I have seen in the times of London um last month they mentioned the group and they did say in two in a couple of articles in the times of London they did describe Shirat Hadin as having links to the Mossad um, and that, that was in um, relation to the um, Iranian uh, oil tanker which was you know seized in the high seas by right. the uh, British um, military um, because Shah Hadin wanted that to be confiscated and whatnot. I suppose it's, the last thing it's worth saying is that all these things that Shah Hadin attempts to, attempts to do on a legal level, they all seem to fail. Like they don't really have successes in that in that respect. Um, but they um, they are successful in kind of generating bad headlines for people. Tends to be right, and like creating an atmosphere of fear and tension um, for human rights activists. Exactly, um, because they are you know they're they're a very intimidating you know bully organization um as you said like using the courts um in order to censor and stifle dissent um here in the u.s and in the uk and abroad um so what you know what is the if if sharad hadin and other right-wing zionist groups uh, and israel lobby organizations um, do succeed in in you know um, blocking Ilhan Omar and 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 the other congressional delegates from the the West Bank yeah. trip. What what what's the significance of that? What does that mean? Well, I don't think they will do it because they'll be shooting themselves in the foot. Really, um, it will just give a massive publicity boost to the BDS movement to Ilhan Omar and the others. Um, the, the significance of it would be that it just shows how intolerant is uh, Israel is of any attempt to advocate for Palestinian human rights um, and to hold Israel accountable for its crimes against Palestinians. 
um, and that will be revealed even more to even more Americans if they were to bar Ilhan Omar entry. Right. I mean, of course, it's the same um, the same state that is attempting to deport Omar Shaker, the you know the bureau chief um, of Human Rights Watch in Jerusalem, um, because of his. Yeah. advocacy for human rights for Palestinians um, and yeah so exactly and we're, we're familiar with so many Palestinians that they've done this to um, and others Palestinians and their supporters who they've done this to um, but even someone like Omar Shaka doesn't have the profile that Ilhan Omar does so I think they, they're going to have to very weigh from their point of view they're going to have to weigh very carefully whether they do it or not I, I doubt they will yeah. to be honest but who knows yeah. It's a crazy state, right. so we'll see. <laughs> right. Well, we'll definitely be watching that, of course. Um, but uh, but I'm I'm really excited about this podcast episode. Um, another great another great podcast episode, Asa. As always. Um, yes, and um, the the first segment we have is an interview I just did uh, with um, Radhika Sainath, who's one of the staff attorneys at Palestine Legal. There is a huge victory for student activists on U.S. campuses um, that that happened this week. Uh, Fordham University, which is a you know self-proclaimed you know social justice-oriented private Jesuit university in New York, um, several years ago, uh, the the dean made a unilateral decision to ban students for justice in Palestine um, from forming a chapter. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the students, instead of throwing up their hands, they, um, they, they filed lawsuits in court. And finally, this week, uh, a New York State Supreme Court judge ruled that Fordham could not employ this kind of viewpoint discrimination on students um, and must allow uh, a chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine to be formed. So that's a huge win. Um, and... Uh, and then uh, a little bit later in the broadcast, I, I did an interview with our friend and comrade Justin Podur um, about his forthcoming novel about Palestinians resisting Israel, uh, Israel's occupation and blockade in Gaza. Um, and it, it's it's really nice. You know, we don't do this enough. I, th- I think we should yeah. interview more writers, uh, especially fiction writers. Yeah. Um, because it's really important, I think, for people doing this kind of work and, and being immersed in, you know, the struggle for Palestinian rights um, to, to, to really envision a world without Israeli occupation um, and, yeah. and a post-colonial Palestine. Um, and and I think, you know, Justin's ability to, uh, he's a fantastic writer, but also, you know, kind of... Um, pull in his own experiences from being an activist in Palestine to his documentation of, of you know, uh, struggles around the world. People are fighting for human rights and, and dignity. Um, I think it's, you know, his his writing, pulling this all together in the context of what's happening in Gaza and, and, and greater Palestine, um, I think is really lovely. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. His novel is called Siege Breakers. And uh, we have a link to the publisher's website, uh, um, webpage, where you can find more information about the book on this podcast blog post. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what's, uh, what's your thoughts? What well, are your thoughts um, on I, it's, fiction it's, about Palestine? Yeah, it's a great interview that you've done uh, with Justin on his new book. Um, and um, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to uh, dipping into it, to uh, reading it. Um, it sounds very much to me like exactly the kind of approach we need to fiction on Palestine because there's so many uh, cliches in this area, you know, usually from yeah. kind of the Orientalist canon and, yes. there's, uh, you know, and the peace process industry of mm-hmm. kind of having an... Arab and a Jew sort of reconciling after centuries of division right. and all this kind of, right. you know, mythological nonsense. Yeah. Um, and reading the blurb of his novel Siege Breakers, it seems it does have an Israeli protagonist, but um, with a very different take on it, which I think yeah. is exactly the kind of take we need, which is somebody who switches sides. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um 
yeah, I mean, it 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 sounds like a really good novel, and I found the this uh, interview you did with him really fascinating. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm excited uh, for our listeners to hear it. And um, but first, we're going to go to just a, a couple of minutes before the interview with Radhika Sainath. Um, we have a couple minutes of audio from a recent press conference that students and their lawyers um, gave in New York following the court victory that uh, that supports um, the formation of a, of a chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine at Fordham. So let's go to that and then we'll go to the rest of the interview with Radhika. My name is Nadia Ben Youssef, the Advocacy Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights, with the extraordinary students and movement lawyers who fought so hard to, to get an incredible legal victory. Now Fordham University students can advocate freely on campus for justice in Palestine, and it's a really exciting moment. Um, and I want to turn to you, Esther, um, about the significance of this moment. What, do you, what does it mean to you as an attorney? What does it mean for the movement? Yeah. I mean, as Ahmed said, I mean, they've, they've been, the students have been fighting this for over four years. Some students have graduated, but the current students have joined the fight, and it's been an ongoing struggle. Um, and I think the decision yesterday really signals that, that efforts to silence criticism of Israel and efforts to erode the movement are not going to work. They're not going to work, they can't work, and they can't work especially uh, when there's such a strong, vibrant, and, and ever-growing student movement um, that's backing it. At Fordham, um, we actually come from a tradition of organizing on campus um, for other issues as well. Um, so a lot of the students who were involved in SJP were also involved in struggles for reproductive justice on campus and for workers' rights, so in the adjunct uh, union sort of movement and also um, in the dining workers uh, in their struggle to keep their union contracts. So, for us, it was sort of being immersed in that the struggle for justice is universal. You know, we know that uh, there is not one liberation. There is only, we can only be liberated together. So I think the sort of campus culture of activism definitely informed some of what SGP was doing. And also that a lot of us uh, were involved in organizing off campus as well. So that's something that sort of helped us like, I think stay sane <laughs> and know that there is a movement off campus and there are things outside of Florida that matter. Wow, amazing. Safira Lurie. This is the brilliance that's at Fordham University that was silenced by the university. Incredible advocates for justice. The first thing I could say is, is the number one thing I learned from the situation is, is no matter how large or how big an institution is, as long as you're on the right side of history and you're fighting for a just cause, it doesn't matter if you're, you're, you're in the minority. You will proceed through it and you will make change. You just have to, as they said, lawyers said before, it's perseverance and it's continuing to advocate and not giving up. Uh, they want you to give up. They want you just to be drowned in paperwork or drowned in other obstacles to try to suppress you from moving forward. But never allow that to stop. No matter how long and extensive a process seems, as long as it's a just cause, there's really no reason that you should stop. You know, uh, you're doing something right. You know, no matter what cause it is, if it's for LGBTQ rights, if it's for you know immigrant rights, reproductive rights, whatever it is that you are interested in, fight for it. And there's no one that can tell you that it's wrong. You need to remember that all of these great causes and, and movements who have started over history, look back to the civil rights movement and MLK and Martin and uh, Malcolm X, they were the outsiders. They were the ones that were demonized by the United States government. They were the ones that were criticized. They were in the minority. And now they're revered, revered heroes. There's holidays to celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday. So just continue to fight forward, and I promise that if it's a just cause, you will uh, succeed. You'll move forward. Beautiful. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Those were some of the voices of students and their lawyers speaking on August 5th in New York City. Following the landmark ruling by a judge who found that Fordham University's ban on students for justice in Palestine was arbitrary and capricious. The judge's ruling means that the university must now allow students to form an SJP chapter. According to Palestine Legal, the Center for Constitutional Rights and Cooperating Counsel Alan Levine, who represented the students, 
The New York State Supreme Court officially annulled Fordham's decision to deny SJP club status as nothing in Fordham's rules permitted it to, quote, reject an application of of a student club because it criticized the policies of only one nation. In her ruling, Justice Nancy Bannon stated that, quote, it must be concluded that Fordham University's disapproval of SJP was made in large part because the subject of SJP's criticism is the state of Israel rather than some other nation, in spite of the fact that SJP advocates only legal nonviolent tactics aimed at changing Israel's policies. I'm delighted to be joined by Radhika Sainath, senior staff attorney with Palestine Legal, to talk about this legal victory and what this means to the students who had been fighting for years to be able to start an SJP chapter at Fordham. Radhika, thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having me on. So this is a significant historic win for Palestine advocates on U.S. campuses. Um, Here we have a judge ruling that, quote, SJP advocates only legal nonviolent tactics aimed at changing Israel's policies, which seems like a basic, simple stating of the facts, but it flies in the face of Israel lobby groups and right-wing Zionists who've been trying to malign and smear SJP activists and push university administrations to, to do the same. Take us through what happened this week and why this court ruling sets a precedent. Sure. So this is a case about a private university engaging in blatant censorship by banning students for justice in Palestine. And, you know, all these students wanted to do is hold events and talk about Palestinian rights like any other student group or, you know, as student groups do on campus. And they were told by the university that they couldn't do this because it would lead to, quote unquote, polarization. So, you know, after months of, you know, trying to appeal to the university to try to talk them, change their minds, I mean, a lot of activist groups and other groups, community groups, Jesuit groups wrote to Fordham trying to get them to to do the right thing, um, you know, and that the university wouldn't budge. And so these students were forced to bring this lawsuit as a last resort, and they sued in April 2017. And late Monday, we got this, as you said, like landmark historic ruling where um, you know, a New York state judge agreed with us. And she said that the university arbitrarily violated its own rules. And she annulled a decision made by the dean who had vetoed SJP's recognition. So what this means is that SJP is now a recognized group at Fordham University. And you know, I just can't, you know, I just want to really emphasize that this is a historic decision in a landmark lawsuit. This is the first lawsuit challenging institutional censorship of student speech supporting Palestinian rights on a college campus in this country. And, you know, Palestine Legal has documented over a thousand such incidents of censorship and suppression since 2014. And, you know, this is the first time that we, you know, fought back and won in the courts. Um, And this sets a really important precedent, I think, for, um, you know, other student groups. I think it sends a really strong message as well Um, you know, to other colleges and universities that are trying to silence students for justice in Palestine or other students group groups who criticize Israeli policy or who are calling for a boycott of Israel. And um, talk a a little bit about the the, these tenacious students who who, you know, even after they graduated from Fordham, um, they still kept this fight. Um, you know, on on the front burners, uh, bringing these lawsuits and and not giving up. Can you talk a little bit about their fight and and? Yeah, and, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it, you know, this is a victory, but I will say it is it is bittersweet because all four of the original petitioners graduated. You know, by the time this decision came, and um, you know, the named petitioner um, Ahmed Awad is you know his dad's from Palestine and you know, this was something that was really, this is an issue really close to his heart, right? And he, you know, unfortunately, he graduated, and he wasn't able to ever, you know, teach and advocate for for the rights of his people on campus. Um, You know, one thing that this decision did do was add a brand new petitioner, Veer Shetty, who is a sophomore, so he'll get he'll get to continue. And, you know, there's a lot of interested students who are interested in this issue. Um, at Fordham. So a new generation of students will be able to talk about Palestine um, and, you know, educate their students and things like that. But, you know, you do have to give these students a hand for spending, you know, so many years of their lives in this battle, even though the lawsuit, you know, it was filed two years ago, but, you know, they had started, uh, you know, organizing to to form this club um, in 2015. So even earlier than that. 
And when they uh, wanted to start the club, they were subjected to to this um, uh, year long investigation by the administration, where they were like asked their political opinions, um, their you know their their politics were investigated. Can you talk a little bit about that? And and if if that was kind of an anomaly in terms of what university administrations are doing to uh, students who advocate for Palestinian rights, or or if that was like standard procedure at Fordham? Sure. Yeah, you know, the administration threw up a number of administrative hurdles and bureaucratic barriers. That is not unique to these students. We see it all of the time at private schools and public schools across the country. And um, by administrative hurdles, I mean making it really hard for students to organize for Palestinian rights by doing things like losing paperwork or asking them to to submit paperwork again or calling students in for endless questioning. and in a way that is different from how other students advocating on different issues are treated. So that's really what happened here. Um, you know, there was a, a really overly long process um, before the students even got to the point where um, their club approval was voted on by the student government, which happened in November 2016. And um, up until that vote, um, they were asked all kinds of questions. They, you know, they were told that, you know, support for boycott, divestment and sanctions would, quote unquote, stir up controversy. And administrators pointed to a 2009 talk by Norman Finkelstein, um, who supports Palestinian rights. And there was controversy at Fordham, presumably at that time, 10 years ago. Um, You know, students were asked whether BDS would lead to the desolation of Israel. They were asked why they use the term apartheid to describe Israel. You know, so they were really interrogated um, about these things. They were asked um, about, you know, here in, in New York, Governor Cuomo passed an executive order, which creates a blacklist of companies who engage in, um, in BDS and um, not applicable at all to student speech supporting BDS or criticizing Israel. Um, but the students were questioned about that. And, you know, they were incredible. I mean, they were like, junior lawyers, you know, they were, you know, sending the university, you know, documents, you know, that written by the NYCLU and sort of stuff on the First Amendment. And they were explaining to the university how, you know, the First Amendment, um, you know, that boycotts, political boycotts are protected by the First Amendment. And they were quoting Supreme Court cases. And, you know, they did a really, really great job advocating for themselves. And, um, you know, but at the end of the day, yeah, the student government did did approve them and they should have been a full club in 2016, but the university didn't follow its own rules and decided to, you know, veto that decision. And when, um, you know, the Dean that, that vetoed that decision wrote this, you know, this long opinion on why he couldn't, he wasn't going to allow students for justice in Palestine to form at Fordham. And it was kind of crazy. You know, he said that this club would lead to polarization he said that, you know, you couldn't have a club that advocated for, quote, um, a specific group and against a specific country. Um, he said that a call for BDS, quote, presents a barrier to open dialogue and meaningful, and, sorry, and mutual learning and understanding. So he was really on, you know, you know these talking points of these anti-Palestinian groups, right? Um, and you know, he was just sort of pulling these out of nowhere. Uh, you know, these are not bases for, for, um, for, you know, club approval at Fordham University, which actually has all these really, it has a stated mission of, of, of of respect and understanding and things like that. So that's, those are some of the barriers the students faced at Fordham. Radhika, you mentioned Cuomo's blacklist. Um, can you talk about the Fordham victory in the context of these kinds of increase, increased attempts by state and federal legislators to crush Palestine solidarity organizing, especially on campuses? Um, and, and what advice do you give to young activists who are watching this carefully? Sure. So, you know, 27 states have adopted laws targeting the boycott movement for Palestinian rights. And that said, all of your listeners should know that their right to boycott is protected by the First Amendment. Um, for the most part, these laws are actually pretty narrow. Um, in most states, like in New York, um, they don't apply to individuals at all. They apply to, to corporations. Um, other states, that, that's not the case. Um, but what we really see here is the true purpose behind these laws, and their backers have said that, and that is to 
to chill people from speaking up for Palestinian rights, to confuse them. Um, you know, these laws came about because of the growing movement for Palestinian rights in this country. And it's really led by students. And, um, you know, people who are against Palestinian rights have been really clear that, you know, their strength is not with the grassroots, it's not with the students, it's not with people of color or marginalized communities, but it's with politicians. And that's why they've chosen a strategy of, of trying to, you know, pass these laws. They're really vague and a lot of people don't understand them. Um, and that's what happened here. And, you know, I think for your listeners and for other students, like, you know, you, you, you should know your rights. I think, I think the students do know their rights. Come to Palestine Legal if you have a question about your rights um, and, you know, be ready to defend them. Radhika Sainath, you're a senior staff attorney with Palestine Legal, and you can go to their website at palestinelegal.org. Thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Joining me to talk about his new novel, Siege Breakers, which comes out in September, is Justin Podur. Justin is also the author of The Demands of the Dead and the nonfiction book Haiti's New Dictatorship. He's a writing fellow of the Independent Media Institute's Globetrotter Project, where he writes anti-imperialist nonfiction. He's also the host of the great podcast, The Ossington Circle. We'll link to all of his work. But first, Justin, it's so good to have you on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So we've been friends and comrades for years, uh, and you're a prolific writer and analyst of many struggles for rights and liberation all over the world, from Haiti to Venezuela to Palestine. And now you have a novel about fictional characters in Palestine, but set against the backdrop of the very real violence of everyday occupation and settler colonialism. Tell us about why you dove into writing fiction about Palestine and how it fits within the context of understanding Palestine's story to a wider audience. So here's the truth. The truth is I always wrote fiction and started writing nonfiction much later than I started writing fiction. So I, I started writing fiction as a teenager, but of course it wasn't good enough to show anybody. Um, and I started writing nonfiction uh, in around 1998 or so when I was working for Znet and I started writing about the Zapatistas and I went to Chiapas um, as on one of their kind of solidarity tours and I started reporting from there and I wrote about Colombia. So I, 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 I was before that time of writing uh, nonfiction, before I started kind of working as a journalist, I was already writing fiction. I just wasn't, um, yeah, it just wasn't that good. So I had to learn how to write uh, better. And I spent a lot of time um, educating myself and taking writing courses and doing writing workshops and reading books. Um, there was a period of, there was this, there's this great book I read called Don't Murder Your Mystery, which kind of like lists 39 rookie mistakes that, that writers make before when they're when they're starting out and I had written a draft of the demands of the dead and I read this book and I was like oh wow that's like 18 of those 39 that I have in my uh, <laughs> in my book so I I um anyway so the point of that the point of all this is fiction is is really like what I like to do and I'm always um and the reason I like to do it uh, I think is is what links to siege breakers. The reason I like to do it is because, um, you know, imagination is free, right? Like as an, as activists, we're trying to change things in the real world, and that's really hard. And of course, imagining things is not always easy either. Um, <clears throat> but it can be 
um, and it should be, and, and that's that's sort of like what I'm, why I why I wanted to write this was like you can't. Um, it's there's a there's a Fanon quote that goes something like, uh, you know the the settlers the settlers mission is to make it impossible to even imagine freedom for the right. native. Yeah. And uh, and I and so I'm like, well, you know we can imagine freedom we can imagine freedom in fiction and we can we can put it out there mm. and the other the other thing that i like about speculative fiction and utopian fiction which is like where this book where siege breakers kind of ends because it, it starts pretty bleak because we're starting in the in today's world but it gets to a point where things are start to get a little bit better than they are now mm. and uh, the reason i like that um, is because when I read fiction that's really bleak, I'm all, I always have a little bit of like, hey, you know, you're, we're in fiction here. Why, why, is it, why does it have to be like more bleak than the real world? Right. And as a fan, as a fan, I always find myself gravitating towards escapist kinds of stuff as opposed to like the hyper real grim uh, uh, stories that, you know, are more, more in the literary vein. Right. So, uh, you know, I write what I like, you know, I, I write the kind of story that I'd like. So I like action, you know, you know, I like thrillers and you don't see a thriller where the Palestinians are the good, are the heroes. Right. And that was like, uh, as someone who thinks of Palestinians as heroes and likes thrillers, I kind of thought, well, let's, let's put these things together for, for a, a reader like myself. We'll set the scene for Siege Breakers. Um, you said it's it takes place in in modern times. Uh, who are the characters, and in which geographical location is the story situated? So it's almost all set in Gaza. So it starts off with um, uh, you know again I, I use a lot of real stories as the jumping off points. Um, the story of Vittorio Aragoni is kind of like what I start with. Vittorio was uh, an, an international solidarity uh, activist from Italy. He went to Gaza. He was kidnapped and murdered in Gaza. And, uh, you know, that's this is the part that everybody knows. But, like, those of us who are a little bit in the know know that there were people, Palestinians in Gaza, that were turning... Gaza upside down trying to find this guy and rescue this guy and that's like again one of these stories you can't really it's almost as a journalist it would be really hard to go there and piece it all together and talk to people and get all of these and put the story together but you can imagine how it must have been for the Palestinians who were like we've got to get this guy this is like one of the only people that came here that wants to show you know that he cares about what happens to us and so that's the story that we start with is like the Palestinian characters are trying to track this guy down and save him. He's not Vittorio. He's Victor. He's not Italian. He's Swedish, but you know, there's end notes that'll tell you what it's really going on. So that's where it starts. But then from there, it turns out that there's um, the protagonist, a guy named Nasser, he discovers or he's told by his superiors that, there's a bigger plan to kind of unite the Palestinian factions and try to change the, strat the strategic equation, and it all centers on Gaza. And so he's because of, he's part he's part of an elite, you know, elite thriller kind of <laughs> oriented squad of fighters. Um, he's going to play a big role in making sure that this security for this initiative and the politicians that are going to come and do this uh happen so that's what that's like the first i don't know 10 percent of the book is yeah. the, is setting it up for that but then oh sorry no go ahead do you want me to tell you about the other okay yeah just so give then, us a little teaser of some of the plot okay so then there's three protagonists there's nasser there's ari and there's um maria so ari is an israeli um, member of a secret, you know, spy organization, and he's very high up in the in the organization. So he's a child genius, groomed from childhood, and he has decided, for various reasons that are revealed in the book, that he can't participate in this anymore. And instead of kind of being a whistleblower, he he becomes a defector. 
So he's actually using the military resources of Israel to work secretly on behalf of the Palestinians. And so how he does this while evading detection and trying to you know, establish some kind of contact on the Palestinian side with people who have absolutely no way to trust somebody like this is his, that's his story. Mm. And then, <clears throat> and then there's another story. So the other jumping off point for this American squad. So there's this American little team that was involved in training Ari. So that's the connection. And so the protagonist there is this woman, Maria Alvarez, and she's like a security contractor type. And again, those of us who follow these things know about this story of this Mossad assassination of a Palestinian um, Hamas uh, figure, like a higher up um, commander who was in Dubai, I think, at a hotel in Dubai. And the authorities in Dubai got a little bit upset. They weren't supposed to get so upset that Israel ran this assassination operation in one of their big hotels. So they released a half-hour video of all of the operatives and every detail of what they did <laughs> from when they entered the airport to when they you know, changed their wigs and all of this. So I, was, I got really obsessed with that story. Yeah. And I and I imagined, you know, what if there was an equivalent kind of professional team just happened to be sitting in the lobby when this assassination plot was happening? And rather than a Hamas operative, it's this Palestinian Democratic uh, elected official who they're trying to assassinate. And so Maria's in the middle of this lobby and she sees this stuff going on around her in Abu Dhabi instead of Dubai. And she figures this out. So having figured this out, she has to decide what she's going to do about it. And then what she decides to do about it gets her involved in the whole plot. Um, oh, that's exciting. So there. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with Justin Podor. He is the author of the forthcoming novel Siege Breakers. Um, Justin, you mentioned this. You, you incorporate, um, you know, kind of real... Uh, situations, um, you know, real news reports, um, stuff about Israeli weapons technology, the surveillance state that Palestinians are subjected to. Um, you also work from some articles that we've published on the Electronic Intifada. Um, talk about the research that went into the book. What what stories stood out to you in the real world, um, you know, besides the ones that you mentioned that you yeah. decided were important to weave into the narrative? So Electronic Intifada was so important um, because it has that perspective that you hardly ever find, which is my perspective, which is like Palestinians are actually, it's not just a matter of like Palestinians are not bad or Palestinians are, you know, um, it's like Palestinians are the heroes in this story. And uh, there are lots of stories all over Electronic Intifada about especially the 2014 war uh, where Israel uh, attacked Gaza. And there were a lot of military details that you could find. I mean, Max Blumenthal's book, The 51 Day War, was huge for this. Um, but Electronic Intifada was covering it at the time and afterwards. And every, every time there was like something about, you know, often it was the stories of like, how Palestinian, the things Palestinian commandos could have done, mm -hmm. where it's like there's this settler fantasy of like, oh, they want to just kill us all. They want to just come into our uh, settlements and kill women and children and just kill anybody they can get their hands on. And there, there's many situations in the 2014 war and since where these Palestinian commandos could have done that, but they deliberately, um, in spite of the Israelis targeting civilian infrastructure and civilians, the, the Palestinian uh, commandos and the Palestinian kind of armed forces, groups, were specifically trying to have as much as they could a fight with the Israeli military. Right. And it's the Israeli military that was avoiding that. So all of those, um, all of those stories from EI were, were really important. And then, uh, of course, a lot of EI's coverage of 
politics in the West and politics in, Can in Canada and the States are, were also another side of it that we explored because, or that I explored in the book because uh, on the American side, like Maria and her group, they're having to deal directly with the U.S. Um, kind of right. pro-Israel lobby and, and all of the apparatus um, that supports Israel in the U.S. Mm. You've spent time in Palestine, obviously, as an activist and organizer, um, and I know that it's been important to you to be able to take those experiences and bring them back home to connect them to the larger issues of racism, uh, colonialism, imperialism, capitalism. Tell us about your time in Palestine and how that informed uh, both your work in nonfiction writing and in Siege Breakers. So I went in 2002 as part of ISM, the International Solidarity Movement. And I was already kind of attuned to the whole, um, like the politics of international solidarity and the importance of the idea that solidarity is reciprocal. So it's not like charity. It's not like, oh, I'm going to Palestine to help these pe right. these poor people, right? Because the Zapatistas were really like strict about that. They were yeah. like, if that's what you want to do, please don't come. Right. Um, and the ISM, you know, I think was was motivated by some of the same uh, ideas. So I went, I went to Janine, um, and that was the the year that they had had that battle massacre in Janine, and I saw the zone of total destruction. And um, I was there when that <clears throat> when the Israelis uh, blew up this bank. They brought these tanks in, and there were you know a bunch of kids that were there, and we were there, and we were like, what the hell is this? And then they, they turned out they wanted to blow up some bank. So they blew up some bank. And we were like, why did they blow up the bank? We never, nobody ever found out. Why yeah. um, and then uh, we, I went to Gaza for a little bit. And Gaza was, you know, Gaza, they, it wasn't a terminal. The Arrows checkpoint wasn't a terminal. I've heard, you know, you'll see, like, um, I've gotten detailed descriptions from people who have been through Gaza much more recently than me. But for me, you know, we got through and they were they were still kind of building that security zone. Yeah. So I actually saw them bulldozing the orange trees and, and stuff. And I tried to take a picture and it was like, hey, stop that. And I, it was like a loudspeaker and somebody was watching that I didn't even know. Right. And uh, so now it's of course, it's like much more intense than it was then. And then, you know, back then it was like you'd be dry. We'd be in a car, you know, in a taxi or something. And then. The, the Israelis would bulldoze a bunch of dirt just right onto the road so that you could go that way and then you'd try to go along the beach or whatever. And they just, it, it just seemed like they were just trying to make people miserable, right? And, yeah. and lengthen their uh, commutes or whatever it is. But I think a lot of those areas that I was in where I was kind of raving and ranting about how, how is, Israel was making things miserable are now just totally destroyed. Yeah. So it's just like uh, the whole idea of of how much they can escalate and how much worse things have gotten since I've been there has also been kind of stunning. I haven't I, I haven't been there to see, but I don't think I really need to because I can, you know, I hear these accounts, and that's part of what I'm trying to do in Siege Breakers because it's like I I haven't been there in a while, but I you know I can imagine what's going on and I. I can talk to people that have been there and do my homework and, and present that. And hopefully, you know, people can see what it's like to cross. And there is multiple crossings. Like there are people who are trying to, Palestinians who are trying to get out. And then there's Maria and, and uh, another character, a Palestinian character named Nahla, who are trying to get in. And it's like how hard it is for one group to get out and another group to get in and all the positions of the people and, and what it looks like. Um, all of that is a big part of the book, right? The symbolism of like, you know, what the same crossing looks like from a Palestinian perspective versus an American one um, or an Israeli one. What do you think is the role that writers and artists uh, could be or should be playing when it comes to this kind of, you know, anti-colonialist organizing um, and, you know, especially like envisioning a fictional world, you know, as leftists? Um, mm -hmm. What what talk about that role a little bit? 
Yeah, so I, I, I got a lot, I mean, I, I haven't been reading him for very long, but I got a lot out of this uh, science fiction writer named Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson writes, uh, he wrote the Mars trilogy. Um, yeah, I think it's like Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's all about, and it's, uh, it's, and he's trying to write them as utopias. And he said something like, Anybody can write a dystopia these days just by picking out newspaper headlines. Right. <laughs> right. But it's a lot harder to make it a utopia because, you know, it, it, to make a utopia that's believable, to make a utopia that shows that we're thinking about what a better world could be. Um, and I really like that. And in fact, a lot of leftists have written utopias. So I haven't been reading Stanley, Kim Stanley Robinson, but of course, the big... Um, a huge influence on me was uh, Ursula Le Guin, right. um, the dispossessed, right? So she's imagining an anarchist uh, society and all. And so she has this anarchist travel to a capitalist society. And then he looks at capitalism the way an anarchist would, which mm-hmm. is really, you know, you get a lot of insight from that. Um, there's, there's a book, um, there's a book called fire in the mountain fire on the mountain that I read recently. I'm in Kansas right now. So, and mm-hmm. John Brown is from Kansas. So Fire on the Mountain is this short book that imagines what America would be like if John Brown had won the raid at Harper's Ferry. Oh, wow. So then the Civil War would have really been about black liberation. And then, um, you know, so it's it's. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good future. <laughs> anyway, and then they, they, there's a funny scene where they, uh, somebody picks up a, a speculative kind of like alternate history, which is our history, and they're like, "Oh my god, look at this crap!" You know. <laughs> um, so, I, uh, I think, I think that, I think that people, leftists especially, you know, gravitate to writing utopias but uh, honestly leftists are also pretty bleak like one of some of my favorite some of my favorite writers are pretty bleak like out of the theroy um you know her first book her first novel the god of small things was super bleak like it was really really bleak and then uh the new one the ministry of utmost happiness i thought was fascinating because she does kind of take it to this like little bit of a utopian place at the end um, where she's, uh, where she's, she's got this little intentional community of people like outcasts and misfits and they kind of all take care of each other. And that's where she ends it. She doesn't end it with the state coming and bulldozing everything, which, you know, you're kind of waiting for. It's an Adam the Roy book. And it's, you know, it's like, okay, well, what? but no, that's where it ends. So, you know, those are all, uh, and those are all kind of leftist writers and, um, and I, I, I think, I think that's like <sighs> the real world is is bad enough, <laughs> you know. So I do, I'm amply like informed by my nonfiction reading and research uh, about how bad the world is, yeah. but um, need a, you know a little bit of a break, so <laughs> yeah. make make things make things up. A siege break, one might say. <laughs> yeah, a siege break. That's good. Hey, I like that. <laughs> Use that in the marketing. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> what do you hope readers take away from your book? Um, and yeah, like uh, who who is your audience? Who who did you write it for? Who who is in your mind? Me. <laughs> so you know, I'm a I'm a fan of like superhero fiction and and Sherlock Holmes and like these story. There's a science fiction series called uh, the Vorkosigan saga where it's there, there's this brilliant um he's he's disabled and uh it's like all about how he's he kind of gets or works around his physical disabilities um to have this career as a mercenary commander <laughs> in space uh so it, it's 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 just like all these kind of geniuses that have these uh you know, that solve these problems. So that's what I'm attracted to. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to write for that kind of audience. And then, um, you know, uh, this is, this one, one point about like utopias, whether they're writing utopian or bleak fiction, I think that a big part of what leftist writers 
do and try to do um, is humanize, right? Like that's what fiction can do. Like any nonfiction can tell you what happened, um, but like you can't get into somebody's mind in a nonfiction book and say this is what they were feeling and this is what they were thinking. Um, this was their love life and these were their love triangles. You know, you, sometimes people do in biographies, but like, you know, you can't really, you can't really say like, even though she was with him, she was really thinking about someone else, or right. whatever. Um, so that, that kind of interiority that you can provide is like a big part of that humanization. It's like, oh, this is a person that's living through this like me and I can experience this. I could have experienced this. I could, I could have lived like this life if it was, you know, if the dice had been rolled a little differently. Right. So that is, um, that kind of humanization is a big part of what I think, um, writers should or, or do that's, it's what they do. Um, and so when I'm thinking, when I wrote Siege Breakers, it was that idea. Like and for me, like one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest impediments to a solution, if you want, or like, you know, one of the biggest things propping up the apartheid system in Israel is the successful dehumanization of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're so successfully dehumanized that even if you say like, Hey, they killed 400 children, it just kind of like, Oh, whatever, you know? Um, but so in, if you can get somebody into it, a different way, like mm -hmm. you're reading this, you're reading this action story and then, maybe next time you see something that happened in the real world, what your, you know, what your idea is and what your emotional reaction is, is, is now affected by that experience, that fictional experience that you had. Right. Right. So it's like, I, I've heard journalists say like, if you could go there and you could see it, right. you wouldn't, you wouldn't react this way. Like you wouldn't be so old about it and so it's like okay well not everybody can go there and see it but everybody can read siege breakers and you know or whatever or, or other kinds of experiences like that well finally where can people get a copy and how can they find more of your work okay so um you can look at so the publisher is called roseway uh the book is out on september 2nd and they can go to like I guess Roseway is an imprint of Fernwood. But if you if you search for my name Podor and Siegebreakers Podor Siegebreakers, you should get to Roseway, um, and you can order the book from them. That's preferred to any other ways that you could get the book, which I'm sure people know. So I don't need to mention. Um, try, yeah, try to get it from the publisher if you can. Uh, and or your local lefty bookstore, which I'm sure will carry it. I hope. Um, well, if, if they don't, tell them to order it. Yes. Go up and say, why is this not in the store? <laughs> um, yeah, that's how you would get it. And um, yeah. Excellent. And um, of course, your blog is at podor.org. That's P-O-D-U-R.org. You're also on Twitter. Yeah, it's just my name, Justin Podor. Excellent. Trying to get off Twitter because yeah, Twitter is awful. Every time yeah. I say anything on Twitter about Twitter being awful, you always like, you always give me a like. So it's I know true because it is. I know you're thinking the same. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the same wavelength. Yeah. Um, well, Justin, we'll have uh, all the links uh, to your blog oh. and your podcast and uh, your novel, of course, Siege Breakers, on the Electronic Intifada podcast blog post that accompanies this uh, recording. And Justin, thank you so much for all of your work. And I'm really excited about your book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Nora. Thank you, EI. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. 
Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.